1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, host, and voiceover artist down here in San Diego, California. And excited to be diving into this movie with you, Steve. Something from our 90s past uh, that we have seen already on the Facebook group has gotten an incredible amount of support and joy from our listeners and our and our fans. Honestly, I'm not surprised because frankly, I just love this movie. And every time I've gone back to it, I've gone, is it really as good as I remember it being? And every time I go like, yeah, this movie is totally good. It fits into such a specific, unique category of action and humor. And it's just, I'd watch this all the time. And the movie, of course, (laughs) is Men in Black. We should probably say what it is. Yes. In, ca- in case they didn't read the title of the episode. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. Can you tell me, John, how you first came to this film? Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure. What is this? 97. 97. So this is just before I go uh, get out of the military. So I'm probably in Charlottesville, Virginia, living with Maurice. And I bet I went to see it with Maurice because we were both big Will Smith fans. And for those who don't know, Maurice Jones, that's my best friend from Virginia. He was the um, city manager of Charlottesville when all that stuff went down with the um, protesters and that unfortunate acts, an unfortunate moment where the young lady was killed in the protest there. Um, uh, a very good man. And uh, uh, we have been, and we're like friends, like we'll text each other Eddie Murphy jokes from the 1980s. Like we just have this kind of friendship where he doesn't take himself too seriously with me. So I always loved going to see movies with him because it was the rare time when he would let his guard down. He was like the Tommy Lee Jones to my Will Smith, and I could hang out with him, and I always enjoyed when movies would crack him up, and Will Smith movies at this period of his career did that. So I remember distinctly we went to see it in Charlottesville together, and we just had a great time watching this movie. I So this came out in uh, 96 in the summer, Ooh. and I had just graduated from film school. Ooh. And we, it was funny, we had just talked about my... This you is know, snobby Steve Morris period, yes. And yet, for whatever reason, that this movie did not trigger it. Like, I went to see it in the Chinese theater, and yeah. I just had an absolute ball. And I, you know, I, I, I totally love this film. Watched it many, many times since. And I, yeah. and you mentioned Will Smith. Yeah. This is talk about the arrival of a star. Yeah. After yeah. this, because this is, I think, Independence Day is like '96. Obviously, really? been doing Fresh Prince, but like this is if Independence Day said. Hey, I think this guy could be a movie star. Yeah, this movie says no. This guy is a movie star, right? What, what do they call the four quadrant thing? That's mm. what Will Smith was at the time, right? He appealed to men, women, uh, whatever ethnicities, whatever ages, yep. children to grandparents. Will Smith had that <laughs> gift, and certainly a lot of kids grew up in the '90s to the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So he had already established himself with one generation firmly. And I think these two movies, both Independence Day and Men in Black, really solidify him as a movie star across all the quadrants. Right. And uh, turn him into a name that we still talk about today. And of course, maybe not recently for the best reasons, but 
overall still a star. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, this is our first film directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. And I wanted to talk about him just a little bit because he's pretty interesting, which is, first of all, his career in film, as far as I can tell, begins in the world of pornography. Oh, okay. I don't actually know anything beyond that. I don't have a list of his credits. I'm sure one could figure out what he had actually done, but he did that. Worked on a movie called uh, In Our Water, which is nominated for an Oscar in 82, I think. And then he meets Joel Cohn at a Christmas party who starts talking about this script he's working on called Blood Simple with his brother. And Sonnenfeld ends up being the cinematographer for Blood Simple, then did uh, Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. And I think like that early Cohn brothers look, I mean, they're geniuses, nothing nothing to take away from them, but it's sort of the Barry Sonnenfeld era. And then it's the Roger Deakins era. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Like, that's so dominated by that. And then uh, these are the movies that he's the DP for. Yeah. He did Throw Mama from the Train. Which I haven't seen in a long time, but I love. (laughs) You remember the movie Three O'Clock High? Yeah, the the, um, fight movie. I think Casey Shamasco is the lead of that one. Um, That's one that he was the DP on. Then he's the DP on When Harry Met Salary and Misery. Oh, yeah. So this is like... A great cinematographer who Mm -hmm. then does the Adams Family movies, Adams Family, Adams Family Values, and Get Shorty before doing Men in Black. Mm -hmm. That's a very, and then he does Wild Wild West, which we talked about recently, which I know you have a soft spot for. (laughs) I do. And then then he moves to TV and does Pushing Daisies, which is a a really interesting movie or TV show. I love that show. And one of those shows that was canceled way too early, Pushing Daisies. Um, and I think he also did the series of unfortunate events TV show, mm. but didn't go back to doing movies, which is because that's actually, you know, Adam's family, get shorty, yeah. Adam's family values and men in black. Yeah. Those are, that's a really good set of films after his great career as a DP. Yeah. 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 It's kind of interesting. Cause he's, yeah, he kind of, I think he, yeah. I mean, cause right with Wild Wild West, I think Wild Wild West damaged him. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, and he he did do big trouble with that Tim Allen film, that kind of mm-hmm. ensemble weird one. He did come back to direct the sequel to Men in Black, but then it's just the law of diminishing returns because RV. I suppose some people have a soft spot for RV, the Robin Williams <laughs> film, but it's not that well received. So maybe he felt like he wasn't. You know, sometimes they have these runs, directors, and then they can't seem to get it again. Right? I, we see this all the time. Walter Hill, John McTiernan, some really great legendary directors have a run, and then it just kind of starts to fall apart a little bit so maybe he's just gun she was gun shy or he is gun shy about coming back to do too many of these because he did do men in black three so he's directed all three of the men in black movies but he's also recently directed six episodes of schmigadoon which has gotten a lot of positive reception so maybe he found a second calling in directing tv maybe there's yeah. less pressure maybe the studio isn't like what have you done for me lately and this is more a matter of oh wow i can really spend time with these characters and cultivate this stuff and really bring my own unique perspective on the look and feel of a show. And I would say Schmigadoon absolutely shares a connection style-wise with Pushing Daisies. Um, totally. And I've mm-hmm. watched a fair amount of the first season of Schmigadoon. I haven't watched what? all of it, but it is really good. Listen. It is objectively a really, really well-made show. It's really fun. Um, and he, cause he, he has that delicate balance. I think the, mm-hmm. the good movies of him have the delicate balance between the humor and the fun yeah. and the style and not taking themselves too seriously. Yeah. That you you're kind of aware you're watching a movie in a really fun way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, a little bit of pre-production. This is based on a Marvel comic, which I never read, mm-hmm. uh, but it was optioned in 1992. The screenplay uh, was written by Ed Solomon, who wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> also wrote the infinite, infamous Super Mario movie of the of the you know ni- early 90s. Um, Mom and Dad Save the World. He wrote Charlie's Angels. Oof. And the producers, they wanted Barry Sonnenfeld really from the beginning um, because of Adam's family. Right. Um, but then he was in the midst of Get Shorty, so they went to Les Mayfield as the director, and then that fell through. And then they offered it to John Landis, oh. who turned it down. And the next person they offered directing Men in Black 2 was Quentin Tarantino. Now, I don't know how serious he turned it down, and I don't know right. how serious the conversation ever was, but the Quentin Tarantino version of Men in Black would certainly be something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it would still have the humor, but it'd be really dark. Yeah. And it would have a much stronger commentary about aliens, illegal aliens, immigration. I feel like it would have much more of that. And it would probably have some incredible scenes. Sure. Between Tommy Lee and Will Smith in the car, some extended, awesome dialogue scenes between the two of them. But uh, maybe he just felt he couldn't bring the right kind of, um, not slapstick, what I'm, I'm trying, the right kind of, humor that Barry Sonnefeld seems to be really known for, as you mentioned yeah. a few minutes ago. I, what I think, too, it's that I think people expected Tarantino after, because this is after Pulp Fiction, yeah. to be like all other Hollywood directors who are looking for a property and not being Quentin Tarantino, yeah. who is looking to do the next Quentin Tarantino movie. I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. Do it. Yeah. Go for it. Barry Sonnenfeld is a better Tim Burton than Tim Burton. That is my statement, uh, and I will go into any trial and defend it because they essentially have the same kind of vibes, and you can see the Adams Family is absolutely a Tim Burton-esque sure. film, and I think Barry Sonnenfeld succeeds much more consistently than Tim Burton does. Tim Burton may succeed with high spikes, but there are a lot of bad movies on Tim Burton's resume. With Sonnenfeld, there's a couple or a few, but there are hits that are much more consistent. And the style and the fantastical nature, while still grounded in reality, that he does, I think he's much more successful at bringing about about the Tim Burton aesthetic. And so that's my comment. And as Colin Ray said in the 90s country, that's my story, and I'm st- st- sticking to it. So there you go. I I, I think you have a, a a lot of arguments in your favor. I think Tim Burton. I think Tim Burton is one of those people who's obviously brilliant. Yes, but I don't think he's in control uh, or understands how his genius works when it works and why it doesn't work when it doesn't work. If that right. makes sense, he's just going to be his Tim Burtonness, yeah. and sometimes that syncs up well with a movie, and sometimes it doesn't. Where Barry Sonnenfeld seems much more. Uh, in control, I would say, of yeah. like, I'm now doing this. There's he also has a, a lighter way... touch, I would yes, say. Yes, a lighter touch. That's a great point, Steve. A lighter touch that appeals to more people, but still does not um, uh, uh, does not sacrifice the bubbling darkness amidst all his stuff that has darkness to it, including Adam's family, men in black, and what have you. Now, you can argue, of course, on Tim Burton's side, he doesn't have a Batman or a Batman Returns even, which I think is better than Batman. But 
I mean, Men in Black is a really good franchise. And so he at least has that as maybe a slight counter, not exactly equal, but certainly a, a, enough of a counter that you can make the claim and throw in his other movies and kind of overwhelm Tim Burton's resume, in well, my opinion. Having started Batman 89 and not finished it yeah. this last time, I would, oh, yeah. watch, I would watch Men in Black every time before I'd watch Batman. I would watch Get Shorty before I'd watch Batman. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you cut out all the scenes with just him and the Joker, great. I'll watch that all day, every day. But you have to watch everything else, and, and everything else is where I kind of lose my interest in that movie now, looking back all these years later. Boy, I'm going to get in so much fucking trouble. Anyway. Oh, I think you've said much more troubling things in the past. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. Ew. Um <laughs> So, and right around this time, he is finishing up Get Shorty, and he mm. and his wife are lying in bed reading the script to Men in Black, and they both finish it. This is their story. They both finish it right at the same time, and he turns to his wife and says, Tommy Lee Jones, and she turns to him and says, Will Smith. Wow. And That's the studio great. turns to both of them and says, Clint Eastwood and Chris O'Donnell. Ooh. I mean, it's not like it wouldn't have worked, but I don't, at the time, especially because Chris O'Donnell at the time, I just don't think it would have the magic that this one has with both of these guys in it, you know? I In particular, I well, I love Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith both in this yeah. movie. I think they're both great. I think Clint Eastwood probably could do a bunch of, he would be different than Tommy Lee Jones, but yeah. I don't think Chris O'Donnell could do what Will Smith does. And I like Chris O'Donnell yeah. back in yeah, that era. Right. Um, but the studio says, no, no, no. We, you know, we don't know about this Will Smith guy. Yeah, he's got a TV show and maybe Independence Day had not come out. I don't, I'm not sure. Right. He said, we're going to set up a dinner with you and Chris O'Donnell, and yeah. you get to know each other, and you're going to see that we're right, and that's who should be cast in the movie. So uh, they go to dinner, and this is apparently what Sonnenfeld did. He said, listen, I'm really not a very good director, and this script isn't really, I mean, I got, there's going to be some real problems with this film. And he just <laughs> talked down the film the whole time until Chris O'Donnell passed. Wow. <laughs> it's a bold move. It is a bold move. It's a yeah. bold move. We'll see how it works, Cotton. We'll see if yeah. it works out for him. The next person the studio wanted was David Schwimmer. Oh, Lord, no. Oh, no thanks. That is, that is not this movie. No. Uh, and the only other thing I heard was that I think I think the Clint Eastwood thing never really developed, and they went after Look. Tommy Lee Jones, and apparently, it's funny, so he does, there's a commentary track with him and Sonnenfeld. Oh, wow. And Tommy Lee? With Tommy Lee, oh, I got it. Yeah, and you know, I've I've said before, like sometimes having an actor on a comic on a commentary track is great. Yes, and sometimes it's not so great because they're just not really aware. If they're only there half the time and they don't yeah. know the, they don't have a lot to say sometimes. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is great. Sounded very very involved. He he and Barry Sonnenfeld seem to have a great relationship. Yeah, lots of jokes with each other, a lot of understanding. It sounds like uh, Tommy Lee Jones was very involved and contributed a lot. But then the other story I read is that when Spielberg went after him, because Spielberg's the executive producer to play yeah. this part, yeah. Tom Lee Jones said, the script is terrible. I'm not going to do it. And Spielberg said, you sign on and I promise the script will be good by the time you're ready to act. So what? how that relates to the relationship with Sonnenfeld or anything else, I really don't know. Right. Um, but those, the, these are the stories that I read. And this is like, you talk about peak, you talk about the birth of Will Smith as a movie star in this movie. This is Tommy. This is peak Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. The whole 90s is peak Tommy Lee Jones, right? Because you start with Under Siege in 92, 
The Fugitive in 93. Then you have The Client 94, which is a Grisham film. I thought he was great and blown away. If the film wasn't that great, I thought he was good. Blue Sky in 94 gets Jessica Lange a uh, Best Actress nomination. Natural Born Killers is a madhouse of a movie, and he's mm -hmm. great in it. I thought he was damn good in Cobb, even though that film is difficult to watch. He is excellent as Ty Cobb. Then you have Batman Forever, which is a madhouse of a role for him to have taken. Then you jump into Men in Black. And then uh, U.S. Marshals, which is, of course, the sequel uh, there So uh, to The Fugitive. So you, And then Small Soldiers, which a lot of people love. And then we get into 2000s, and it's a little bit of a law of diminishing returns, even though he's still a fantastic actor through all yeah. this stuff. It's a law of diminishing returns. He's not necessarily a lead that people are running to go see a movie. Of. So then 90, this is a right in the heart of 90s. Peak. So as much as this film made Will Smith, I think this film also really solidified Tommy Lee Jones as someone who is much more versatile than you might think, because there are some nice humorous moments that he carries in this film. And I'm sure after 95 and Batman Forever and the Jim Carrey uh, experience, I'm sure he was wary coming onto the film with another up and coming comic like Will Smith yeah. with limited experience on screen. So um, I would I would love to know what the conversations were like between these two guys. I don't know if he says anything in the commentary. Not uh, other than that, he thought Will Smith is great and funny, oh. but there was nothing more, too too much more that I remember. Mm. Um, I think you make a great point, and I, Tommy Lee Jones is one of those guys. He'd been around forever. Oh yeah, and always was good. You yes, know? and then just has this great moment where he becomes a star, and I think as great as Will Smith is in this film, and he yeah. is great. Tommy yeah. Lee Jones is the fucking anchor that makes this whole movie work. 100%. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, people forget about him with the Executioner song. That's when I first saw Tommy Lee Jones. And then, of course, Coal Miner's Daughter, right. C.C. Spacek, which got her a, a nomination. I don't know if she won. Maybe she won. I think she won. No, I think she won. won. Yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, so he'd been around. You're right. And, but the 90s is when yeah. he really kind of became into his own. Yeah. Uh, shall we get into Men in Black? Let's do it, man. Uh, so we start off here. Here's what's interesting. It sounds like they had the budget. And then the test screenings and all that stuff went so well that a bunch of dream ideas that Sonnenfeld had, the studio just went, okay, here's another few million dollars. Wow. And this this opening shot in the titles where we're just following a bug, that was three quarters of a million dollars that got added on after just to do this shot. Wow. Like, how do you go to the studio and say, I'm going to need, what'd you say, three quarters, like $750,000 for this yep. CGI fly? That's just going to smash into a windshield. But I'll tell you what, and this is what makes the great directors great. And Sonnenfeld is a great director. It may not be in the level of Kurosawa or Kane, but for what he does, he is yeah. great. The genius of the opening thing, and I know we're going to get to it, but the genius of the opening thing is that it immediately gives you the mood of the movie. Mm -hmm. And we really should um, highlight that Danny Elfman does the score for this and that, along with the fly, the opening fly or bug, whatever it is, uh, dragonfly, um, immediately gives you the vibe that this is a darker film, but a fun film. Exactly. And, and so it, it's kind of smart to lay the groundwork with the audience. It's kind of like an introduction that you read in a book to get you in the right mood to understand where this book is coming from. $750,000 doesn't seem like a lot of money to make sure your multi-million dollar film is a success. Um, I'm going to keep thinking about your Tim Burton comment because, <laughs> because that, that like it's dark, but fun and light really? obviously is a Tim Burton thing. 100%. And then you add Danny, Danny Elfman, right? right? 
yeah. that that is a huge connection with Tim Burton. Uh-huh. And it's so, I mean, it's just, directing's a weird job and knowing when to fight and when not to fight is, is it, and what's important. And there were times, you know, I remember like when we did the assistance, yeah. um, again, not to compare myself, but there were two pieces of music I wanted and our entire music budget was $25,000, really? something like that, which isn't a huge music, but it's a pretty small music budget right. uh, in today's world. And there were two songs I wanted and they ended up costing another $15,000 and we paid for it, you know, wow. like I paid for it, right? you know, because I just went, the, the, these songs are better and you make these choices, Yeah, you, you know, and in that case, obviously that was a gamble that I lost all of, <laughs> you know, but that's, you go like. I think this makes the movie better, and then you go and you fight for it. You know, you because... came from the right place, which is from the artistic place of what you think artistically made the film better, right? So, right, yeah. uh, absolutely. Yeah. And yet, is that the right choice? Who knows? You know, you can't. So, and and I actually, I totally love this opening. Yeah. Would I have spent that much money on this particular thing? I don't know. It's a yeah. lot of money. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, we, we, so we're past the titles and the, the bug splats on the windshield. And then we end up, we're in this van with a mm-hmm. bunch of illegal migrants coming across the border. And I think that is such a brilliant place to start the film. Yeah. And it's almost, you know, it's almost sad to start the film here because of how that particular situation has blown up the way it has in our world nowadays. And because you know when you're watching it in the movie it is a, at a time when that is something that we're a much more understanding about and so that that's why it's kind of a funny place to start the movie because most people understand that people are coming across to try to live a better life to escaping a bad situation uh and so you can start the movie from this place and it doesn't feel offensive or exploitive at least in my opinion as a latino looking at this as a son of immigrants, I didn't find it to be exploitive. I found it to work perfectly correctly in what was happening because it, the border patrol isn't seen as the hero in this moment. It's as we go along here, it's agent K and what's going on with MIB. So for me, I thought this was a, I thought this was going to bother me as an opening, but it actually was treated with the right amount of, um, of the lightest of touches. And it was yeah. the right amount to deal with it, you know? I think it's I think it's very clever and it's interesting like you know we there's so many battlegrounds over words. I think at the time in the 90s the term illegal alien wasn't a battleground phrase. Right. right. And so because of that the idea it's just so clever of because, like oh we have illegal aliens and an alien ha- hiding among them and it's yes. about immigration and it fra- it frames the whole movie as yeah. oh this is a movie about immigrants and one of the the keys Oops. to the film is no matter how bizarre these aliens look, yeah. they're just like us. Yeah, no you matter know? how different they are, there's value here and they're just like us. Yes, yeah. 100%. Um, and so I think it frames it really well. And I think today, where those words have become such battlegrounds, yeah. I think it would I think it would actually do the opposite job yeah. if you made that movie today. I don't even know if you start like this. No. Yeah. Today, yeah. Because it's going to frame it at a whole bunch of weird places oh. for different people and people are, yep. yeah. You'll get um, called all kinds of things on social media. Yeah, 100%. Um, but the, the guy pulls up, he sees lights in front, by the way, those, this is all shot on a stage at Sony. Those are little tiny lights. Those are not cars that are stopping them. It's all, you know, miniaturized. And there are the state trooper border patrol guys. 
And the, and at first it starts off like they're just, you know, pulling over a guy who's smuggling in immigrants. Yeah. And as they're talking about that, black car pulls up and there is Tommy Lee Jones as K and Richard Hamilton, mm. who is Agent D. We'll take it from here. Who the hell are you? INS Division 6. Division 6? I never heard of Division 6. Really? Uh, by the way, this is Tommy Lee Jones's first day of work. Oh, wow. Well, perfect to be chronologically correct. Then, I guess. Well, and part of it is that Will Smith is still shooting Fresh Prince at this time. And oh. so there were two weeks where they had to shoot everything out with Tommy Lee Jones they could before Will Smith could make it to film. Yeah. And I just love, I love Tommy Lee Jones in every moment of this whole movie. And it's just his perfectly straight delivery mm. on everything. Um, and they just start walking right in. They pull the guys out of the van and Tommy Lee Jones starts speaking to them. Yeah. Nobody knew until the day, this day on the set, that Tommy Lee Jones spoke Spanish. Oh, really? Abuela, no te preocupes. Bienvenida. Estados Unidos. He does it well, too. This isn't a straining, I just learned it phonetically to say it in the scene. Like, it's a good Spanish. It's not a great Spanish, but it's a good Spanish. That's what I was going to ask you. I was yeah. curious. And most of this Spanish dialogue is just stuff he made up. <laughs> wow. Well, it also, for me, as someone who isn't, uh, you know, fluent in language, it also solidified him for me in a way that maybe it didn't solidify for other people who didn't understand what he was saying, like that he um, cares about this kind of yeah. stuff. Like he's not a mean person and he's not mean about this situation. He's trying to comfort the people because doing two things, comforting the people so they're not too scared, but also figuring out which one is the alien, right? So. I love that uh, it works, and you know he's, he's respectful to the grandmother of the of the group there. He's respectful to everybody, and that it isn't until he comes up to the person he thinks is the alien, knows is the alien, that he starts to say the offensive things in Spanish to get that to figure out that that alien does not speak Spanish and is trying to uh, hustle his way across the border. Well, and I love the way they handle it, which is the guy just laughs well, in he... this odd way that doesn't quite fit with what's going on, and they're like, yeah. "Okay, we got him." And then, and and again, this is to your point. He has nothing against these people who are in the van nope. because he just says, go on your way. Yeah, he's he says, going to America. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the troopers are not pleased with this. Yeah. Um, and he goes, well, we're going to have a little chat with our friend here. And they walk away. Yeah. At which point the troopers are going, ah, this seems like bullshit. Like, I don't know what's going on here. So let me ask you a question as a director before we get into the scene. There's something I noticed watching this movie, right? There are certain angles that directors use and cinematographers use, and I should give love to the cinematographer here, uh, Donald Peterman. That, or Don, Don Peterman, Don Peterman. It's uh, <laughs> a great name. The angles that he's using are kind of off kilter, not Dutch angles necessarily, but maybe cousins of Dutch angles so that the border, so that the uh, state troopers are framed in a certain way as they're all huddled by that car. Um, the close-ups on the state trooper when he's pulling over the van. And John Grease is the driver who you all may know, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Great character actor. Um, and the way he's framing everything is to make you feel like, look, this could be a much more grittier situation. But because I'm slightly angling the uh, framing of these shots, it makes it feel like it's a little fantastical, a little off-kilter, not necessarily making you feel uh, stressed out about the situation. Did you notice that as a director, like it, that's an important thing to establish when you're starting out your move, even after your opening credits? 
So my answer is 100% yes. And yeah. I think you are absolutely accurate in terms of the way it's being filmed. Um, so with so a couple of things about it. One is they're using, when you have those close-ups, mm -hmm. they're using wide lenses, which um, tend to distort the face. So it's yes. what you saw in Citizen Kane for those deep focus shots or those kinds of lenses. Right. What they do, and they frequently use them in horror movies because they show ah. you a wider field but they also make like a wide lens will make the nose end up looking really big yeah. and the ears get small. So people, and what it does is it makes things look weirder, which is good for a horror movie, yes. but it also makes it look funnier in this case. Like right. they're deaf yeah. because what they're doing is they're going, don't take this all that seriously. Like they make the right. troopers look kind of like idiots Yes, by the way they film them. It's totally a choice. And it's funny. I don't know. I've said many times before. It's like, I'm not visual in this particular way. Like I understand the terms, but my brain doesn't think that way right. enough. Like this is why I always need a great cinematographer Ugh. who will make this suggestion. Hey, let's make the angle a little bit Dutch. Let's let's go to the to the 16 millimeter lens rather than the 35 millimeter lens, and let's you know move the camera, have it a lower angle. I tend to just think in a very linear fashion visually. Yeah. Um, and this is definitely going. Oh, how do we make this look a little bit? Different, yeah you know yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah i think i think that's a great point um i love by the way so they start talking to this alien who's just laughing and not responding looks like you fell off the bus in the wrong part of town amigo in fact i'm gonna bet dollars to pay so you're not from anywhere near here and tommy lee jones pulls out a knife and then just slices the body open Ugh. revealing that there's just an alien holding a stick with a head which <laughs> is a great visual joke yeah all the aliens are designed by Rick Baker, the great Rick Baker. Oh, that's awesome. And um, this is mostly a dude in a rubber suit. Mm -hmm. And then it's also ILM for when things that the dude in the rubber suit can't do, we switch over to CG. Oh, wow. And I think it's almost all really, really successful CG. And I was thinking about it, I was like, this shot in 96. Yeah. That's just three years after Jurassic Park. Oh, good point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you see like how how much, because when they did Jurassic Park, that was crazy yeah. what they were trying to do. And here three years later, they're like, no, we can do this. Yeah. Mikey? Something huh? Mikey, when they let you out of jail. Again, I think the use of the name Mikey for this crazy looking alien is key to the sense of humor of the movie. Yes, agreed. And just as they're dealing with this guy, our cop comes over the hill, yeah. sees the alien there. And to make it even worse, the alien's got eyes on stocks and one of the stock eyes turns back and sees the cop, and they go, oh, shit. <laughs> and this is where we sw switch from Rick Baker's suits to CG. Yeah. Um, and this is Industrial Light and Magic on a moving plate, uh, modeling Rick Baker's um, designs. <clears throat> and Kay shoots the alien, which just explodes in ridiculous blue slot. <laughs> And again, this is A, it's to keep it not on our rating. If the blood right. were red, this would be gross. Great point. Yeah. And, and it would go towards an R rating. But because it's blue, mm -hmm. everyone's, it's just funny. Yeah. And the way he's standing there, uh, and that's Frederick Land, who's still working today, by the way, but in a mm -hmm. number of shows and series, him standing there just screaming as this thing is coming at him, it's actually believable because what would you react like if you saw an alien for the first time? Would you freak out? Would you stand still? Especially because you're obviously a trained police officer. So, but seeing something like this, which you've never seen before, you know, drives you insane. So that moment when he's just standing there while this all is happening is just so believable. 
So you get the effect of the blue uh, blood, for lack of a better term, uh, slashing on him. And I flash it splashing on him. And I also think the the fact that the blue blood almost feels like something like from a kid's game, like uh Play-Doh type thing where they have squirting stuff or whatever, getting slimed like on the, the Nickelodeon show also takes away the feeling of seriousness from the moment, which is what you need. And the cop is standing there stunned. And again, it's Tommy Lee Jones's. It's funny because Will Smith makes a Joe Friday joke later in the film. Third. And I don't know if Tommy Lee Jones is thinking about Joe Friday or thinking about Dan Aykroyd's portrayal in Dragnet, <laughs> ah. but there is such just the, it's so deadpan and it's so funny. The, that, that, what, what, what. Was not human, I know. Oh, looks like you got some entrails on you there, pal. You know, it's just all really funny. Um, and then the other cops come over the hill and he says, Situation's under control. Calm down, please. Give me your attention for a moment. This is called a neuralizer. It's a gift from some friends from out of town. And he takes out his little uh, flashy thing. Uh, by the way, this it sounds like they had two different versions of this prop, one of which could light up, one of which could open up. Yeah. But the one that could open up didn't light up, and the one that could light up didn't open up, and neither of them worked consistently. And right. so while it wasn't the shark doesn't work, it seems like just this one little prop caused a lot of frustration on the set to get it to go right. This red eye here will isolate the electronic impulses in your brains, and more specifically the ones for memory. And at this point, all of the uh, the crew, to cl the cleanup crew has showed up with like flamethrowers and they're doing all their work. Who are you? Really? Really? And then he puts on his sunglasses. I am just a figment of your imagination. And flashes the thing. I think the storytelling is so good. In this it game. is. And again, as you mentioned, Tommy Lee Jones, he, as opposed to avoiding it, it's really smart. And of course, this might be part of Lowell Cunningham's book, comic book uh, with Kay. He, he steps into the problem, right? And he talks straight to you, which kind of knocks you back. So it's believable that he would be able to have the advantage in a back and forth because he's not shying away from just ha what just happened. He's speaking about it, walking into it, walking right in, walking you through it, and then pulling out the neural laser at the same time. He is walking you into the trap while he is absolutely a matter of fact explaining what happened in that moment. And I love that as a trait of Agent K because it, it, um, it helps you to understand how he approaches the world. He's not afraid of these things. He comes from a different place and he's willing to talk about it, but he knows he's got to neuralize certain people just for their own well-being, you know. You know what just occurred to me is the Wait. difference between Kay and Joe Friday. But <laughs> even though the delivery is very flat in both cases. Yeah. Joe Friday, whether it's Dan Aykroyd or the original guy, they're serious people. Yes. Kay is actually having fun. He yes. totally enjoys this job. Right. And part of what he enjoys is he's making jokes all the time. Nobody's getting them. Right. Because he's always three steps ahead of everybody. Yeah. But that's part of the fun of this. Mm -hmm. You know, so he flashes them and then he plants the new memories. He says, I'm serious, fellas. You're lucky to be alive after a blast like that. What blast? The underground gas main, genius. You fellas need to exercise a lot more caution before discharging your firearms. I'll tell you that right now. And they just eat it all up. Uh, and what I should have mentioned is that Agent D, when this alien went after the cop, yeah, got knocked over and struggled to pull out his gun yeah. in time. And he is sitting there by the side of the road, apologizes. Spirit's willing, Kay, but 
the rest of me. And he looks up at the sky in this very noticeable way and says, They're beautiful, aren't they? What? The stars. We never just look anymore. And this is a plant for something that's going to happen much later yep. in, the, in the movie. Yep. Something which I will tell you now, I think is was a mistake. Oh. I mean, you know, this is not, I really think, I know I talked about my uh, film school derangement syndrome and how I yeah. un totally unfairly criticized the first Mission Impossible in our last live show. Mm -hmm. I do not think this is an unfair criticism. I think they worked in a setup to get rid of Kay at the end of this movie, and then they had to figure out how to bring him back because that was a mistake. Right. You know, the, yeah. the whole, the, this movie would have been, I really liked the movie, but yeah. establishing them as partners is where we wanted to get to. Right. Not him retiring. Wow. And and fair point. And, and and I'm sure the studio is like, we need to move to the younger people with Fiorentino and Will Smith. Right. Uh, and move the old guy out as great transition. But then I don't think they expected the film to be such a big hit. And exactly. I don't think they expected to have pushback from Linda Fiorentino wanting to be part of a franchise. And I right. think that's unfortunately where they were. So because of how it turned out, it might have been the bad decision. But I don't know necessarily. We'll obviously discuss it when we get to it. Yeah. That that was necessarily a bad decision, but I can totally see where you're coming from. But I like this moment to you with uh, mm -hmm. D and J, right? I mean, like uh, Richard Hamilton, such a great character actor, older character actor, has been a number of things. But the back and forth here, you know, the the spirit is willing, all that, and the plants here, I think, works so well too, because this idea that you can do a job so much that you start to forget why you liked it. Like I I can burn out. Sometimes I burn out when I'm you know because I'm watching so much stuff. And you can forget that he, that you love watching movies, you love watching TV shows, but when there's a pressure to get to them, you gotta watch an opening weekend, you gotta have a review out, you gotta watch six episodes of this series that just dropped, you've got to do a review on it. It can kind of um, take away your love of it, and so you yeah. have to find your moments to kind of be like, you know what, I'm not gonna do anything today. I'm not gonna do anything today, or I'm gonna watch a movie or a TV show. Because I want to watch a movie, a TV show that I want to watch, right? Like you've, we've talked off camera how you're kind of opening the door again to yeah. going back and watching some of these films. And that's the thing. And so when he's sitting there looking at the stars, of course you'd forget to look at the stars or, or appreciate the stars because the stars have now become something that symbolizes people trying to land on Earth and either try to ingratiate themselves uh, with civil with the citizens there or try to take it over. So you you can't look at it the same way, you know? And I think the moment is beautifully done. Yeah. I particularly love where you start to get a sense of what he's saying that he's that he's done. Yeah. And then he says, I'll tell you, Kay. I will miss the chase. And Kay is pulling out his neuralizer. No, D. You won't. That's nice. That's really well done. And I also love that the flash is a hard cut to Will Smith running towards camera in New York. Yeah. By the way, the original script was all over the country, underground bunkers, all this stuff. And Sonnenfeld went, let's put it all in New York because New York is where these aliens make the most sense. <laughs> and, and I just right. love that. Yeah, yeah I, I think that was a brilliant choice. And it's cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's chasing off after some guy who's running away fast. And the uniform cops with him are not to uh, keep it up. By the way, the guy's chasing his guy named Keith Campbell is the actor. Oh. And he'd done lots of stunt work and all sorts of stuff. And Will Smith chases him onto a bridge and he just jumps off this bridge down to a street. 
and then there's a double-decker bus coming towards him, and he jumps onto the double-decker bus, walks through him with the line, which is a Will Smith improvised line. It'd just be raining black people in New York. <laughs> this was the humor back then. Yeah. It's hilarious. And, yeah. and this is, again, this is the star. This is a star. Right. And he grabs the guy, slams him up against the wall, flashes his badge, says, You see this? Huh? N-Y-P-D means I will knock your punk ass down. And this guy's freaked out about something, pulls a weapon on Will that explodes. He pushes Will away. Will pushes him back, and he uses that to run up the wall and do a flip. That's not on a wire or anything. That's just this guy. Parkour. Parkour. Yeah. This is early. Well, this is the beginning because I think a few years later is Casino Royale where we see that oh, big yeah. opening chase scene. Right. Like this is where that's becoming established. Yeah. And then we see him run to the Guggenheim Museum and just start climbing up the outside, which is on a wire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, originally this was supposed to shoot in Lincoln Center. And it sounds like right before the shoot, Lincoln Center said, you know, we're going to need a million dollars to let you shoot here. And they went, shit, what are we going to do? And they're looking at all these locations. And then they stumble upon the Guggenheim, which they can get way cheaper. And Sonnenfeld's like, this looks more like alien spaceships anyway. Like we should totally be the Guggenheim. So they're very happy to save a million dollars and not give it to Lincoln Center. Wow. Um, And Will chooses he can't get in so he shoots his way through the door and i'm like man that's a lot of expensive artwork that's where's the alarm yeah i mean this this the guggenheim museum is a really you know it's not a low security place runs up those great uh spiral ramps makes it up to the roof um and again confronts the guy with the gun and he's coming he's coming because i failed and now he'll kill me too yeah well you're just pissing everybody off today huh so then he says, your world is going to end. And as he says this, his vertical eyelids blink, yeah. which we later find out are gills. That's a great, tiny little touch. Mm-hmm. And of course, because we know that this is a movie about aliens and we just saw the opening scene, as soon as he jumps off that bridge, we know this guy's an alien. Yeah. Right. So we're ahead, but Will is sort of figuring it out. And then the guy backs slowly towards the ledge. And he told them, look, I've never fallen off a building backwards before. And they went, oh, are you are you nervous? Do you need a second? He's like, I am nervous. And then they realized that, no, he was nervous about acting with Will Smith. Falling <laughs> off the ledge, that was fine. That'd do him to sleep. But. Yeah, so, so he does that. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Cut to a house out in the country, upstate New York, and we hear a man just yelling at his wife. Yeah. Does not seem like Edgar is a terribly nice guy. Useless Beatrice. The only thing that pulls its weight around here is my goddamn truck. And as we're listening to this, looking at the exterior of the house, we're seeing this light sort of spiral closer, which at this moment just slams down into the truck. Now, what I love is there's actually like three or four special effects going on here. Mm. Because one, there's an explosion. Yeah. Two, there's like something that pulls the truck into multiple pieces. 
And then three, there's a hole that opens up beneath the truck to pull it down into the hole. And then they did it and they still didn't think it worked very well. And so then they threw a whole bunch of burning wood on top of that whole thing. Wow. To make this effect happen. And the door opens and out comes uh, Edgar, Vincent D'Onofrio. He is, this is probably my favorite Vincent D'Onofrio performance. (laughs) Wow. I think this performance is astounding. Over Full Metal Jacket. Wow. Okay. Look, there's no question that Full Metal Jacket is a way more dramatic and emotional and powerful performance. But if I'm talking about just (laughs) what he does, this is pretty amazing. I don't disagree with you. It's a fantastic performance for sure. Here are two other people they went after before D'Onofrio. Okay. John Turturro. Could see that. Totally. And Bruce Campbell. Ooh. I mean, I guess it it would have worked with Bruce Campbell, but I also think it would have have turned it into a Sam Raimi film. Yeah. And I think that would have confused the aesthetics. Because I think you could argue Sonnenfeld, Tim Burton, and Sam Raimi all played essentially in the same sandbox as they were coming up in yeah. terms of their movies. And so in the style, stylistic uh, aspects of the movies. So if you take someone like Bruce Campbell, then mentally or automatically most audiences at that time are, oh, it's a Sam Raimi, right? And so that can take away a little bit of the auteur aspect for Barry Sonnenfeld. So uh, I would love to know how they thought D'Onofrio for this because he had done just kind of almost serious stuff. Even yeah. in Avengers and Babysitting, he's a much more serious dude as the Thor kind of character. Um, so I wonder how they thought of him for this. I have no, I mean, and my guess is he came in and auditioned. Yeah. And did this thing and they went, oh fuck, this is going to work. Um, I, yeah. You know what's interesting? I'm interested now, now I'm interested in the Tim Burton and Sam Raimi comparison you're making. Ugh. Because all three of these guys are influenced by horror. Yes, and 100%. What's, and what's yes. interesting though is that Tim Burton who I would say maybe is the most influenced by horror, has the least scary movies with the most horror elements in them. Uh, uh, uh. You know what I mean? Like Nightmare Before Christmas is horror elements top to bottom. Visually, it's all horror. Yeah. And yet that movie is not remotely scary. No, because, well, he only produced it. He didn't direct it. Right. Right. Beetlejuice, again, dead people, corpses. Yes. Not scary. Not a scary film. Right. Um, where Sam Raimi is like almost the opposite direction, which is like, I'm making a horror film, but it's right. going to be really fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Sonnenfeld is in this other place uh, about it. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so he goes to look down in this hole with shotgun. Please, projectile weapon on the ground. You can have my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. Which, of course, is a... Uh, Charlton Heston reference. Yes, it is. Your proposal is acceptable. And something reaches out and grabs him and pulls him in. And then I love that you see his the Edgar skin fly out of the pit, get dragged in, and then the bug in the Edgar suit comes out of the pit. Yeah, and I love this with Vincent D'Onofrio because, you know, he's such a master actor. He zigs when you think he's going to zag. And when he comes out of the house... Instead of reacting to this temperamental, angry, which seems to be what they're setting up with the script, with the way he's talking to who we find out later, Shabin Fallon, who's a great actress. And he's certainly uh, judgmental of her and talking about his food and Beatrice this and Beatrice that. When he comes out, you think with the explosion of his truck, which is he just said is the only thing that doesn't let him down, 
that he would lose his mind, like screaming, oh my God, whatever. He just walks out and goes, ah, figures. And that tells you that this is a dude who is completely disappointed in his life and he thinks he's a sad sack and he's never going to win at anything. So when he walks out to inspect what's going on, he walks out there. He's not scared. He's not like hesitant. He walks into it and you hear the alien. And instead of him being afraid that an alien is speaking to him or some phantom voice speaking to him, he cocks the shotgun and says, you know, come and pry it, get it on the cold dead hands. And so I think he's a legitimately tough dude. And so when he's taken out, the sounds you hear are horror sounds, Steve. You hear the horror. So what you said a few seconds ago is 100% correct. Like, Sonnefeld knows when to use the horror and when to use the humor in this movie. And the sounds D'Onofrio's making are horror sounds of a guy being essentially eaten from the inside out by this uh, alien entity. And yes, him crawling out with the skin not fitting well. Whose ever idea that was is genius. It's A, done so well, and B, they do a perfect job because you don't like Edgar. No. So you're not feeling really bad for him. Right. And then D'Onofrio, the combo of the makeup and how they did all this and D'Onofrio's performance is like, is this a scary bad guy? Yes, he is. Mm -hmm. Is he fun in this weird, fucked up way? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And then you mentioned Siobhan Fallon Hogan. Yeah. Man, she's so good in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, great supporting part. Yeah. Edgar, what on earth was that? Sugar. I've never seen sugar do that. Give me sugar. And he ends up, he wants sugar and water, and she puts more into it, and he I drinks thought. it. Which, by the way, D'Onofrio was drinking glasses of sugar water, take after take after of take. It uh, got very wired at a certain point doing this scene. Hey, your skin is hanging off your bones. And he turns around, sees himself in the mirror, and he goes, oh, yeah. And then he pulls his skin up across his face. Uh, is that better? And then she faints. <laughs> and now uh, Will Smith is being interrogated because they don't believe this whole story about this guy he was chasing. Can I ask one quick thing before we leave the scene? I also think it's smart that he doesn't kill Beatrice. Mm. Because, as we said, we've got to keep this dark and have horror elements, but we need to keep it light and funny. Him killing an innocent woman like Beatrice would have made this a much more villainous, right. and darker film. So he lets her live because he's got other things to do. And so I like that. And then we cut to Will. So just wanted to throw that in that I think it was a smart move as well to keep it somewhat light even if it's a dark situation and in this interrogation scene we learn so much more about will smith's character which is that is he right yes he is is he faster and in better shape and more perceptive than the other cops absolutely Uh does he know how to shut his mouth not so much (laughs) because he keeps arguing with the other cops they don't believe him at all and then as they come out in comes Linda Fiorentino. I believe you. Laurel Weaver, deputy medical examiner. Find me at the Morgan 26. I'll show you. And then we see her behind them through the frosted glass and we hear Kay's voice. Yeah. Excuse me. You're Dr. Weaver with the coroner's office working on the John Doe, right? Yes, that's right. Will you look at this, please? But I love all the flashes that are just off camera yeah. or in through the glass where we can't quite see him, but we know what's now happened. He just erased yeah. her memory. They were gills, not eyelids. Gills, he was out of breath. Who are you? Did he say anything to you? Yeah, he said the world was coming to an end. Did he say when? 
one of the things that they said, uh, Sonnenfeld and, and uh, Tommy Jones said, is that Tommy Lee was continually cutting his own lines. Oh, cut his own lines down, and it made the scene much funnier by making it brusker and tighter. Smart man. And I love, too, by the way, that the cop that was yelling at Will Smith minutes before comes yeah. in going, Good work, Edwards. <laughs> so we know what's happened to him. <laughs> and they head out uh, together, and we end up at a pawn shop. Who exactly are you with? FBI? NSA? I'm part of a bureau that licenses, monitors, and polices alien activity on the planet Earth. They get out of the car at this pawn shop, and, which he recognizes. Oh, that's Jack Jeep's place. He doesn't sell guns. Yeah. And I like that uh, Edwards thinks that he's still in charge. So he tells, and it's so funny, there's, this, you know, you have the older white cop and the younger black cop, and there's so echoes of 48 Hours, of Beverly Hills Cop, of but like, things that we've seen before. All right, look, I'm gonna slot up in here and I'm gonna put my thing down, but when I come back out, I want some real answers. Okay, go put your thing down. We go inside and there is, I think this is the first time I really became aware of Tony Shalhoub. Oh, yeah. Well, was Wings before or after? Uh, Wings, I never really watched Wings. Okay, okay. So I guess I was aware of him there. Oh, I loved Wings. That was my show, man. Uh, he is, and this movie is actually full of great, great supporting actors. Yeah. Um, I love just the little makeup they did on him. Yeah. Like he's got weird teeth. One of his eyes is sort of messed up. There's things about his hair that look, just make him look not. not like an alien, but yeah. slightly off. Not a bad looking dude, Tony Shalhoub, by the way, but they had to make him look a little weird. Yeah, exactly. Make a comedy. Uh, and, you know, Edwards catches him. He's got Rolexes laid out. He's not supposed to have. And he starts asking him about guns, and then in comes Kay. And immediately, there's a reaction to him. He's nervous. Kay pulls a gun on him. And I love that when he pulls the gun and asks for information, that Edwards, who is a good cop, goes, oh, we're playing good cop, bad cop. He's being the bad cop, so that means I'll play the good cop. He'll do it, Jeeves. One. I'm telling you, that man does not look stable. Two. But you know what? Talk to me. He, he is just crazy when he's like this. He's always crazy. It, just because he thinks it's a game that they're playing, yeah. which it is. It's just a game with different rules that he's aware of because at three, K shoots him in the head. Yeah. Again, yeah. totally shocking, but it also an explosion of green goo, no blood, no gore <laughs> to avoid that rating. And I also love... He immediately adapted to, oh, we're playing good cop, bad cop. But then the moment he shot the guy, yeah, Edwards has his gun out. Yeah, right. He's a cop. He's a cop. That's his, yeah, it's his reaction. Drop the weapon and put your hands on your head. I warned it. Drop the weapon. And then we hear in this weird, high-pitched, slurred voice. You insensitive Get an idea how much that stings. Which in the movie is because his head is regrowing. But yeah. on the set, it's because they have helium balloons that Tony Shalhoub is sucking on to make his voice sound like that as he's <laughs> talking. Apparently, grow, having this head grow back, that was seven months of work at ILM. Wow. Seven months. Jesus. I mean, that's how far we've come today Half with the tech. Right. And I think it looks great. I don't. There's really very little CG in this movie that I think looks shitty. Yeah. Show us the merchandise. You're going to lose another head, Jeeves. Hits a button, and then all of these doors and panels flip over, and we see all the alien weapons. Yeah. Edwards notices right away which weapon it is. 
You sold a reverberating carbonizer with mutate capacity to an unlicensed cephalopoid. Jeeves, you piece of shit. It looked all right to me. One of the keys to this movie is that the cop, perp, or informant relationship Look. is exactly like in a cop movie. Yeah. Like, what? one of the things Barry Sonnenfeld was like, this is, should be like the French Connection. Yeah. With the cop just leaning on informants to get the information he wants. Yeah. They just happen to be aliens. Yep. So we, we, we've found out the information we needed and they start to head out. And I love Edwards trying to maintain some of his face as they walk out going, Yeah, and, and, and I'm going to be back to talk about them Rolexes. Because he is shook. Of course. Do you think that's a direction thing, Steve? Like, Will, the character uh, that Will is playing, is never like, oh my God. You know, even when he sees the aliens making coffee a little bit later on in the movie, which is when, like, Agent J is making, or Agent K is making it very clear what this is all about. Will does not overreact to all of this happening. It's much more relaxed even though he's got a problem with authority even though he doesn't mind shooting his mouth off when he feels like uh he needs to make a joke or he needs to make a lot of a situation or he needs to push back on something why do you think they direct him not to be blown away by these aliens is it to make his transition easier so you ask if it's a director thing yeah and that what i will say so the weird thing about being a director is sometimes you do nothing because sometimes the well, actor comes right. in with that thing. 100%. If the actor comes in with that thing, you just go, I love what you're doing and let's keep doing that. Yeah. I And so I don't know the answer in terms of this, but really? if if I had been the director, I my belief, if Will Smith hadn't done this thing, I would have directed him to do it. Yeah, to react in a strong, especially because Will uh -huh. is a comic, so he can play that moment at, overtly, you know? Well, and I think, and, and the key is, is like, it's, again, it goes to the, con you know, if you've acted for me, the conversations we would have director to actor of like, well, who is this guy and how does he respond? So we, A, yeah. we know he, he adjusts super fast to weird situations. Yes. So yeah. K comes in as good cop or as bad cop. He goes, well, I'm gotta be good cop. Yeah. Right. You know, like this is like, these are the steps that are necessary. Yeah. K shoots the guy. He pulls his gun. Right. And so- and his ego is important to him. His pride is important to him. So he's never going to go, whoa, what the fuck is going on? That's right. not in his character. He's right. still trying to maintain his face. And that is important to him. And so that is why I would 100% have given this direction if the actor but, didn't do it on his own. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about reaction shots. And like, how is Will Smith taking in this information right. is critical to the film, you yeah. know? So yeah, I think that's a great thing to point out. Kay is not going to answer any questions. He says, The only comfort I can offer is my promise that tomorrow morning you won't remember a thing. And again, he puts on his glasses. Again, he pulls out that neuralizer. Yeah, well, that's not exactly some shit you just forget. Have you ever seen one of these, son? And then we're in, a, starting on a great fish tank so shot that pulls back with Tommy Lee Jones finishing a joke. Which he says, by the way, in the commentary track that it's a filthy joke and not one that he could actually share. <laughs> so then I went and I looked up, can I find out what this joke was? And oh. it wasn't that filthy. It oh. wasn't even a terribly good joke, if that's really, in fact, what he was referencing. Right. Um, and I love, again, it's, it's actually very similar to what we were just talking about, is 
Edwards looks dazed because he's coming out of this haze. Ugh. And then he realizes, oh, I don't really know where I am, but I think that guy just told a joke. And I think the appropriate thing for me to do is to laugh, yes. even though I don't know what's going on. That seems like the beat work to me. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And this is the thing. Will Smith was trained as an actor. Like, he was trained. He took classes. He did all these things because he wanted to be successful as an actor. Yes, comedian. Yes, the playful rapper. All of that. But acting is where he really wanted to go. You don't do six degrees of separation right, as a rapper without understanding that this is an this is a uh, career and I, that I want to take seriously and I want people to look at me that I'm taking it seriously. So when you say beat work, you're absolutely right. His kind of half-assed attempt at laughing at this and then immediately following it with, who the hell are you? You know, these things. He is working through the beats as a guy coming out of the Neuralizer, which we haven't seen anybody come out of the Neuralizer. Right. Like immediately. We've seen the after effects, but not immediately. Yeah. It, you know, as you're talking, I just went, man, that slap is so sad because. Oh, yeah. Because his is, so, and for the most part, such a well managed career. Yep. From where he started yeah. through being the action movie star in this era yeah. to taking on more and more serious roles and generally being really good in them. Yeah. And then that, you know, literally at the apex to have that to have that act do that thing it's it's, it's nothing but a tragedy because you're right the winning the best actor was the was the cherry on top was a crown on top of the entire career it would have absolutely solidified him i think he would have totally gotten nominated for emancipation as well which was an incredible performance um but unfortunately you know he lost it and it's been something that has been a part of his life since he started becoming successful which is the black community seeing him as an Uncle Tom, seeing him as a guy who is black, but he's really safe for white people to like. And that's something that I think hurt him. And in the most recent documentary, Summer of Soul, that came out a couple of years ago, there's a great section of that documentary where Marilyn McCoo from The Fifth Dimension, uh, there with her husband, uh, Billy, who's part of The um, Fifth Dimension, she says... It's so great. She's watching the footage of herself and watching the people's reaction. And she says, it was the first time we felt like we were accepted by our own people because the music we made wasn't necessarily like funk and soul, that kind of thing that normally would be um, uh, accepted for as black music. Our music was much more ethereal and you know, out there and so to see so many black people singing our songs, I had never seen this footage. And she starts to cry. I started to cry. Now, right. You know, because you're just like, I get it. What it's like to be rejected by people you thought were your own or your friends or your family or whatever. And so I think this is why people who just want to vilify will make me really angry because you're not understanding the social constructs and you're not understanding the situation fully about why he did what he did. And I'm not excusing it, of course, but understanding is not excusing. And I just, yes, I agree because I love, I, I just I genuinely love it. And so it's really sad. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I mean, I said at the time we talked about it yeah. when it happened, like yeah. violence is wrong, full stop. And Hard that stop. very public action in a very public moment was yep. 
really fucked up. But yeah. I also go, in order to be the kind of movie star Will Smith wanted to be, it's yeah. in my opinion, I yeah. don't, don't know him, I've never had this conversation with him, Yeah. but I think he wanted to be a different kind of movie star than Sidney Poitier, a yeah. different kind of movie star than Eddie Murphy, a yeah. different kind of movie star than Denzel Washington. Yeah. I think he wanted to be a movie star like Tom Cruise. You know, yes, 100%. He, he wanted to be the mainstream movie star who yep. could then, and particularly at that era of Tom Cruise, that's right around Magnolia and stuff like that, could mm -hmm. then do the great film and win the Oscar and do, he wanted to do the whole thing. Yeah. And in order to do that, particularly at that time, but you need to win the approval of the white establishment. Right. And therefore, you're going to incur quite possibly the wrath of your own community as you as they might see you as catering to the white establishment right some members of the of your own community who will see it that right way. yes 100 percent. and and i think that is again i haven't met the man i'm right. not trying to psychoanalyze him but in terms of the tensions that led to that moment yeah my guess is that is part of it. that is one of the many ingredients right not to mention the what seems to be the uh difficult relationship with jada huh. at times and Certainly the stuff that had come out in public where he was ridiculed. This is a proud man. And he was ridiculed in public ways uh, with some of the situations around the woman he loves. And so <laughs> I think all of that went into that moment. And it's heartbreaking. And it's even more heartbreaking that this was the first Oscars executive produced by a black man that was having a, you know, a real black focus to the Oscars. And to have a moment like this happen... Um, it's just it's just so, so tragic because he doesn't deserve it, um, and it's a shame that it happened. And I champion him coming back from this because people have done way worse than that behind the scenes. Uh, so to me, I, I don't put that in. I don't, you know, put that as a mark on him. I think it's more tragedy than it is a, to something of violence. You know, what have you. That's, that speaks to his character. I, I mean, I, I've said many times, I think there needs to be paths to forgiveness. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't mean that those things that we need to find paths for forgiveness for weren't fucking horrible. Right. You yes. know, yes. like there are a lot of people like, but if we go like, look, if you cross these 17 lines, uh -huh. that's it for you forever. And I just, I, I just think that's not a way that's reasonable to live lives. Yeah. You know? I agree. Because we all fuck up. I'm just yes. happy my fuck-ups haven't happened in front of a billion people, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, at this moment, that is not the Will Smith we're talking about. We're no, talking back about- Back to the comedy. Back to the comedy as he's trying to struggle with what the hell's going on around him. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I'll see you bright and early, nine o'clock. Be there or be square. Hands him the MIB card. We cut to- an extermination truck pulling up to the house. By the way, this is shot in Simi Valley. Ugh. There are lots of bugs everywhere. These bugs, these particular roaches that they chose, are A, not native to the United States, which meant that they couldn't lose one. Because if you lose a couple, they might mate with each other, and yeah. that will fuck up the ecosystem. Yeah. You also can't kill them because even though they're just bugs, there is still the... Uh, animal people who are making sure that no animals were harmed. So you have to A, count the bugs Whoa. to make sure you haven't lost any and take really good care of them throughout <laughs> all of this. Whoa. I love that the exterminator 
uh, they decide this is Sonderfeld's idea. He's like, I like when people's jobs look what their job like what their job is because he looks like a bug. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he starts killing some bugs, and there is Edgar in the Edgar suit. You got a hell of an infestation. You know, I've noticed an infestation here. Everywhere I look, in fact, nothing but undeveloped, unevolved, barely conscious pond skull. Totally convinced of their own superiority as they scurry about their short, pointless lives. I think his rhythm. I oh, mean, yeah. D'Onofrio's rhythm is already a bit off, which is why Full Metal Jacket is so good. Yeah. But he manages to accentuate that so beautifully with this character. Uh, don't you want to get rid of him? Oh, the worst way. <laughs> and he kills the guy by taking this poison sprayer and driving it down his throat. And then and we see... And again, for, this is shot for comical effect. Exactly. Even though it's chilling. Because it's shot from below. We see the green stuff come out of his mouth. But we don't see him screaming or gargling or anything like that. He just falls flat and that's it. So, yep. yeah. Um, and then I love just the added details. He's rolling his flying saucer towards the truck that <laughs> it's not quite going to fit. <laughs> Which again, it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, yeah, so we just killed a guy, but now we're still in the world of comedy. <laughs> Will walks up to, I believe this is the Triborough Tri Bridge and Tunnel Authority building in New York, sure. which they loved. It's a great design. Yeah. And then he walks into, this to me is a set whose entire purpose is to be funny. Yeah. Which is he walks in and there's a security guard on one side, this big sort of concrete room with a huge fan on one side and a huge vent on the other that's just so bizarre and industrial and out of a certain overly bureaucratized, technologicalized era of the past. You know what I mean? So Bob Welch is the production designer. He, by the way, was inspired by sort of the 1960s technology world, which is part of why the World's Fair is so key. We mm. look a lot at the JFK airport, which was designed at that time oh, wow. for sort of science fiction uh, comedy of the 60s. Right. And then some of the movies he's designed were The Color Purple, Beetlejuice, oh. Edward Scissorhands. Again, there's that Tim Burton connection. Right. He did Wolf, he did Birdcage, and he did the first Thor movie. Yeah. Um, so he's done a lot of interesting stuff. Well, and I think he's key to this film. I agree with that. Yeah. The guard, the guard gestures will to the elevator. He gets in. I love, this is just cool production design, which is, this is not an elevator. This is just a room with two doors in the front and two doors in the back. Yes. And so will gets in, you feel like the doors close because yeah. the light changes, but the doors don't close because we're shooting through them. And they then. You feel like he's going down because there's flickering light going across his face as if floors are going by. But no, it's just he, he walks into a room and they open up the doors behind him. Can I tell you something? I am a massive fan of pranks on TikTok. I'm a terrible person because I love pranks. I really do. And there is, a, in Europe, or maybe it was somewhere in Asia, they had this prank where people go into an elevator, hit the button, and what it is, is the elevator doesn't move, but the window. And mm. so you start to see the floors and it looks very realistic. Sure. But what eventually happens is the floors is that the elevator shakes a little bit and then the sound comes on. And then you see all the floors start to speed by and people legitimately believe that they are about to go careening through the top of the building and are freaking out the whole time while this happens. And so 
the effect of having that in this movie in that they make him think that he is going and look this is what separates jay maybe from other people is that he you can see on will smith's face that he's a little bit like what's going on here like he's looking at the elevator and then he turns around and the door opens but he he's sensing something is off and this is what's going to make him a great agent is right. that even in situations where he can turn his brain off it's not off he's aware of the things that are off uh instinctively I'm going to tell a strange digression that I hope will make sense, okay. which is that when I was teaching, mm-hmm. a realization I had was how often my students are trying to figure out what they should say in order to please me, the teacher, Oh yeah, rather than what is the good idea that they believe in. Right. And so I'd be asked, because it's a creative, this is an art form. And so right. I'd be asking, well, what what's the story idea that you would come up with? How would you approach this? What would you, and I want to know, what do you think? Yeah, what you specifically as a human being, your points of views, what do you think? Yes. And they're looking at me going, what answer does he want me to say? <laughs> what's going to get me to A? Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and frequently I'd be going, no, no, no. You're trying to tell me what you think I want to hear. I want to know what you think. And, the, and frequently... Half the class would sort of, there's a way that a dog tilts their head when they're trying to understand what you're yes. saying. They're just like, huh? I don't, and the words just didn't compute because yeah. so much of schooling is training you how to give the people what they want. A hundred percent. And that is not how truly creative people operate. Yeah. And right. Will Smith's character in this film isn't doing that. Yeah. He is trying, and this is exactly what this next scene is about. Because we run into uh, the great Rip Torn, a very odd man. And it's, I mean, we talked about this recently a couple of times now, I think, which is the difference between casting the actor that can transform themselves into anybody and casting the person that can do that particular thing yeah. better than anyone else. And Rip Torn just is Rip Torn in it all yeah. over the place. You're late. Sit down. And we walk into this space uh, where the seats are these, uh, the designer, it's based on some very famous design, I think, where the yeah. seats look like these eggs. My name is Zed. You're all here because you're the best of the best. Marines, Air Force, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, NYPD. And there's Will Smith. Again, the color control is great because everybody is in these dark uniforms, military yeah. uniforms. Will Smith is in the bright orange, you know, <laughs> workout pants in the big, huge hiking boots. It just clearly doesn't fit in. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe you already answered this, but uh, why exactly are we here? And this kind of Marine maybe next to him raises his hand. It's maybe he's Army. Second Lieutenant Jake Jensen, West Point, graduate with honors. We're here because you're looking for the best of the best of the best, sir. And my favorite part of his performance is the little look to Will Smith <laughs> of just, see? Yeah. It's just, that is nailing a character in one moment. Yeah, yeah. And again, and that guy is doing exactly what I said. He is trying right. to be what yes. the teacher wants him to be. And and again, Will's having none of it. <laughs> What's so funny, Edwards? Your boy Captain America over here. The best of the best of the best, sir. <laughs> you know, with honors. You know, he's just really excited and he has no clue why we're here. <laughs> that's just, that's very funny to me. So, yeah. The Marine Lieutenant, the bald Marine Lieutenant that's in these scenes, mm-hmm. I was in Wind Talkers with this guy. Oh. And I had no idea 
his name is Sean Bunch. Bunch is crazy, uh, but Bunch served a number of tours uh, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And so he is a uh, kind of a, very dedicated to the service. Um, but it was so much fun to see him so young here because, of course, a few years later, I see him in, in Wind Talkers. But he became a technical advisor on a number of shows. Mm. And so um, it was for military stuff. Yeah, military stuff and, and stunts and, and what have yeah. you and all of that. So uh, it was great to see him as he has no lines, but he's there distinctly as the bald uh, Marine lieutenant. The way this scene goes is entirely different from what was in the script. Mm. And this to me points out, yeah, it's going to be the thing I'm for the next however many years we do the cinephiles. I'm <laughs> going to continually make this statement mm. that directing is frequently not what people. It is not. I have all the ideas in my head and I know what the movie's going to be, and then mm. I execute that. Right. It is a collaborative art form where things are happening all the time, and you're adapting yeah. to them and coming up with new ideas and making changes. In the script, they sit down and they all answer essay questions and it's about the test yeah. that they're actually answering. And when the PD comes in with these egg-shaped chairs, Sonnenfeld is looking at those chairs and going, they're so weird and has the thought, man, how would you take a test in these chairs? And then he realizes that the, what they're looking for is someone who doesn't obey the rules, doesn't right. respect authority, can think around corners. And he goes, what if instead of actually doing a good job on the test, the test is is rejecting the circumstances of the test oh. is that they is that and that's why he comes up with the paper that is tearing and the pencils that are breaking. Yeah. And no good surface to write on. And that becomes the test rather than what's in the script. Right. And if Bob Welch doesn't come in with egg shaped chairs, Sonnenfeld never has this thought to rewrite oh. the scene. Well, happy accidents. That's yeah, what directing it. is. Most of the, well, like you said, was this a direction with Will Smith? It's really? like, well, I don't know. It right. depends. Will Smith might have come in with one thing and go, oh, no, that's not quite the right thing. Then the director gives him a direction and right. that ends up being totally fucking wrong. Yeah. And they go, oh, well, then let's. And then they come up with a new idea and then that's what's in the movie. That's oh. how directing happens most of the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, we could say Kubrick had it all worked out in advance. And maybe <laughs> to some degree he did, yeah. but he's figuring shit out, too, as you go along. How did he figure out the landing of the moon? That's what <laughs> I want to figure out now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about that documentary about two, Room 237. Don't even start. I would I would love to explore that with you. I will do a short, but you're not going to like what I have to say about it. It's perfect. I love yeah. it. Um, uh, but yeah, it relates a lot to conspiracy theories today, I think. But anyway, uh, so uh, we break, you know, we, we, we go through all this stuff that's falling apart. And finally, he goes, this is stupid. And he walks over and grabs this table and the sound design on the horrible noise the table makes. And Sonnenfeld said, look, we want to make this funny. So basically he told him, I don't know if he said it this way, Ooh. but the more awkwardly you could stick your butt out as you drag that <laughs> table across the room, the funnier it looks. And everybody turns and he's just like, hey, you guys want to get down on it? And they just look pissed off. Yeah. Then we cut to alarms are going off everybody has weapons and we're in like a shooting gallery with all these monsters all of our marines and soldiers and they're all firing and edwards is looking and looking and not firing and then he takes one shot and that ends the test lights come on may i ask why you felt little tiffany deserved to die and we see that he has shot a little schoolgirl, cardboard cutout schoolgirl through yes. the head 
Well, she was the only one that actually seemed dangerous at the time, sir. How'd you come to that conclusion? And then he goes through that he thought that big muscly monster was a threat and then realized he was just working out. And he thought this other guy was a threat and saw the tissues and realized that he has a cold. And then he saw Tiffany. I'm thinking, you know, eight-year-old white girl, middle of the ghetto, bunch of monsters, this time of night with quantum physics books. She about to start some shit, Zed. She's about eight years old. Those books are way too advanced for her. If you ask me, I say she's up to something. And to be honest, I'd appreciate it if you eased up off my back about it. Or do I owe her an apology? Oh, so good. So, so good. So it's smart. A, it's a lot of Will Smith ad-libs. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, this is where I just go, movie star. Yeah. You know, I don't know what his acting chops are at this point. We're going to see those much later. Mm -hmm. This is just full. Here's how much charisma I can bring on the screen. Yeah. Just from me, you know. And here's how comfortable I am to exactly on the set with these legendary actors. Yep. Rip Torn and Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. I, I love all the other guys because the other guys in the previous scene and in this scene yeah. all think that he's a fool. Yep. And that they are winning. And so they're all walking out. I like just his last sort of. That was a good shot, though, right? Interesting enough. Yeah. Barry Sonnenfeld was certain they were going to cut this scene out of the movie. The, the shooting of the young girl. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. He didn't think it worked at all. Okay. He didn't think it was funny. He didn't, and so he, and, the, and you do this sometimes. It's like you leave the scene that you're pretty sure you're going to take out in for a yeah. screening to confirm that you are correct and it doesn't work. <laughs> and so they, they have it set up for a screening. He goes to the studio and goes, listen, I've got this in. I'm sure it's not going to work. And so after we do the screening and nobody enjoys it, nobody laughs, <laughs> I'm going to take it out. They got howls of laughter. <laughs> the scene totally slayed. And he went, I'm going to leave that scene in. <laughs> Because again, you don't know. Of course not. He's got a real problem with authority. So do I. But this kid ran down a cephalopoid on foot, boss. That's got to be tough enough. Let's hope you know what you're doing. Was there any chance they were going to take any of those other guys? Of course not. That's why they make them so nondescript. Yeah. So they don't take any attention away from Will Smith. That's the gift of casting correctly with stuff like this. Yeah. I love this line from Zed because it perfectly encapsulates... What he's saying the truth Whatever. and making them think he's saying something completely different, which is he says to the other guys, gentlemen, congratulations. You're everything we've come to expect from years of government training. <laughs> Such a great line. Yeah. <laughs> and not wrong. And now if you'll just follow me, we have one more test to administer an eye exam. And as soon as he says that, you're yep. like, because we, because they've established so well what this is. Yep. And Kay stops uh, Edwards from going with them. Yeah. And he hands him a folder. And when Edwards asks what's going on, he tells him. Yeah. He talks about the formation of this agency. And then I love that they're walking down the hall and we see just going by Zed putting on the glasses and holding out the neuralizer. And then they're already passed and we see the flash happen behind them, which is a technique he uses a lot in this movie of sort of double actions with the comedic action happening in the background yeah. while the exposition's happening in the foreground. Everybody thought the agency was a joke, except the aliens who made contact March 2, 1961, outside New York. There were nine of us the first night. Seven agents, one astronomer, and one dumb kid who got lost on the wrong back road. And we realized that dumb kid is Tommy Lee Jones. Yep. Oh, you brought that tall man some flowers. <laughs> is Edwards buying any of this at this moment? How can I say this? I think he's taking it all in. I don't know if buying is the right 
description, but I think he's taking it all in before I, making a final decision. Can I ask you, let me ask you a different question. Sure. So he flashy thinged Edwards after they walked out of yes. the pawn shop. Yes. We know that he erased shooting Tony Shalhoub in the head and the head yes. going back. We assume that's gone. Did he erase the memory of chasing down the cephalopod? Cool. I would imagine they did. Because that changes how Edwards is going to think about hearing their aliens on the planet. Right, right. Oh, maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I have to think he did. But then it makes us wonder why he sits out on that bench all night before he decides that he is going to take Tommy Lee Jones up on his offer and show up the next day, the next morning rather, at at that place. So it's a good question. I don't know. Do they erase the chasing? Because he never brings it up. No. So, Jay, so maybe they did and he's just kind of being himself naturally and he's not really thrown off by seeing aliens as strongly as he would be a, because as you said earlier, it's set in New York and he's a New Yorker and seeing strange shit is part of being a New Yorker. Right. And B, he's just probably as a young black man who clearly has no family ties or friends that he has no problem walking away from to be part of this organization, he's kind of a loner. And so for him, he's had to fend for himself. And so seeing crazy shit in his life growing up in New York as a black man, you know, maybe this isn't as um, unsettling as it would be for other people as it was for that uh, state trooper in the beginning of the movie. What I think this movie does really well, you and I have talked about mm. backstory in the past and yes. when it's necessary and what it isn't. And what this movie does really well is omitting backstory. Yeah. is right. like, we don't, if I had been writing this screenplay, it is very possible that I would have established a relationship with Will Smith's mom or his yeah. girlfriend or the apartment he just walked, you know, rented right. or right. like that he had a place in the world Yep. Therefore, making the choice to give all that up would be a bigger choice. Because in yes. general, if you say, do you want a choice to be harder or easier? I'd like always make it harder. That's more dramatic. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that at all in this movie. No. And, and I would have been wrong. And they are clearly right. Because this works great. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can omit the backstory, then omit it. But at this moment, he's not really believing the story that Tommy Lee Jones is right. telling. Right, right. And, and I, I like, again, it goes to what we were talking about in the opening scene with the refugees, is that now he talks about... They were a group of intergalactic refugees wanted to use the Earth as an apolitical zone for creatures without a planet. Did you ever see the movie Casablanca? Same thing, except no Nazis. Oh. <laughs> so he is framing what these immigrants are as yeah. immigrants and refugees that we can yeah. feel good about, not alien invaders. But let me ask you something. Yes. Do you think Edwards has seen Casablanca? Because I feel like maybe he hasn't seen Casablanca. I have no opinion on this. He doesn't stop him. He doesn't stop him. Well, no. and Edwards is really fucking smart. Yes, true. Like, true, very true. I think he, you know, I think he has learned to hide his smartness under street smartness. Good call. Good you know call. what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I bet Edwards... I'm not saying he has read quantum physics books, oh. but I'm saying that he is certainly capable. He's you know aware I mean? of aware of quantum physics and nothing else. Well, and, yeah. and like, I mean, Kay knows a ton of fucking shit. Oh, yeah. I, and the implication is a few years from now, 
Jay will know as much as Kay did because right. that's how fucking smart this guy is. Good point. Um, and I only say, ask that question because he's young, not for any other reason, but that is young. I just want to clarify that. Yeah. In case anybody wants to misread what I said, which just occurred to me, some people might. I mean, because he's young. And I hear nowadays all the time from young people who say they never want to watch black and white films. So, I mean, honestly, I mean, we've had this conversation before. A, there is way more media available today than there has ever been in the history of ever. Yes. And true. so the, the the ability to watch all the classics is a lot harder. And B, watching how young people grow up, they're watching, you know, no yep. offense, TikTok. Like, yep. they're not going... Like me, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, going to watch Casablanca or some other older film, that's more work than a lot of people will put in these yeah. days. Very true. Uh, look, tell your boy Zed I had an absolutely wonderful time, and thank you for everything, but uh, why don't you show me the door? All right. I want to get some coffee. You want some coffee? No, thank you. I'm fine. And he opens up the door to this room, and there are a bunch of these aliens. These are all puppets. These are all Rick Baker puppets. And I love... That they're smoking cigarettes and yeah. just talking about coffee because they're just, doesn't matter how alien they work, look, these are just ordinary people. Yep. That's what they are. Wanga. Wanga. <laughs> how you doing, fellas? Oh, shit. Okay. That's not decaf, is it? Viennese cinnamon. And again, great reaction shot on Will Smith. Because now he realizes they're telling the truth. And then we yeah. cut to, as you mentioned, he's sitting on this bench near the water at Battery Park. If we get one of the jokes, which I like. At any given time, there are around 1,500 aliens on the planet. Most of them right here in Manhattan. And most of them are decent enough. They're just trying to make a living. Cab drivers. Uh, not as many as you'd think. <laughs> and he says, well, what's... And they talk about that as being kept a secret. And he goes, well, why? Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. I love this line. Yeah. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals. And you know it. I got some wise, true shit. We see it all the time. There's a great bit in The Kings of Comedy where Cedric the Entertainer is talking about, and I think he's specifically saying black people, but Ooh. I think anybody. He said the difference between uh, black people and white people is white people run to the danger and black people run away from it. And he goes, I'll give you an example. He goes, right now, if 10 of you in the audience paid your ticket, if 10 of you stood up and started running Half the audience would get up and run with you out the door out of just fear that something they can't see that these other people can see might take them or might hurt them. So by instinct, they get up and run. And that's what essentially what he's saying. Tommy Lee Jones is saying here as well, is that people can be as in mass get scared because of an unknown thing and they all. But if you deal with people individually, you can walk them through stuff a lot easier than you can groupthink because groupthink is elevated uh, uh, hysteria. Well, and, and to, to just reverse the order a little bit, yeah. when we see a large group of people in whatever way you don't like act yeah. crazy, yeah. you go, those are crazy people. Right. But if you met them individually and went to their house and talked to them about their kids or their job, they would just be people. Yeah. That's the scary thing is that that all of us are capable of being, as he described, done, panicky, dangerous animals. Yes. You know, self self-preservation kicks in. Fifteen hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. Five hundred years ago, everybody knew 
The Earth was flat, and 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. I love that line, imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Yeah. I think that is a real... And, and Barry Sonnenfeld, I won't say this is a deep movie or a philosophical movie, but this is very much the point he wanted to make. We will, don't know anything, you know? I will say that it is, Steve. And it, and this is the gift of Sonnenfeld sometimes. He hides these things in his movies, right? Of course, scripts, he may not always write the scripts, but he's attracted to these kinds of films that are saying a little bit more about certain things than you would think. He's not as overt as Richard Donner with the whole save the dolphins and all that stuff and Lethal Weapon too. He's much more subtle in the presentation but the message is unmistakable. And uh, I appreciate that about the films that he makes. And there is depth to this one. And I think instinctively, that's why people like it. It's more than just a throwaway comedy. Maybe in some deep recesses, seven layers down, yeah. there's a piece of them that gets triggered by this movie because they sense in a subconscious way that there's more to this than you might expect. And so and that's the ah. gift of some of these son and Phil Again, why I think he's a better director overall than Tim Burton, because I think Tim knocks you over the head with his message, right? And it becomes maudlin as opposed to effective. Well, this is the I'm going to get shot in the streets. Go ahead. Mm. Yes, I don't think there's so quite so many avid. I don't know. I I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. Of course, there are all sorts of people. They'll kill you next. Well, and, I, and, I, and and really, we just said that, you know, a person is smart, but people are yes, yes. dumb, frightened, dangerous animals. So, Jim Burton fan club may meet up at your house. Be careful. Scary dudes. I think just going back to this idea of a message yeah. is the, do you think after Lethal Weapon 2, there was a groundswell of attention to save the dolphins? Oh, it's a good question because it was the groundswell of attention to it that sparked Donner to put it in the movie to give right. it a bigger platform. I don't know necessarily. It just, there was such, a, as you like to say, Steve, oh, they, they yeah. hung a lantern on it so obviously that exactly. to me it felt a little bit like, well, did people really get affected by this? <laughs> did they feel guilty in the moment and then move past it because of all the other madness going on in the movie? I don't know. I've said this many times on the show, but people when people's criticism of a film is like, oh, that movie is so manipulated, manipulative, yeah. what they're actually saying is that movie failed to manipulate me. Yeah. Because if the movie properly manipulated you, which is the whole point of fucking movies, is to make you feel shit. Yeah. If it did it correctly, you would just feel something. Right. It's when you feel like it's trying to manipulate you that you're aware of it, it's not working. When that is so obviously a mess, not only is it obviously a message, the movie is not about dolphins or the oceans in any way. <laughs> no, and it so isn't. it's just like throwing a message on top of a thing. And yeah. that's why it stands out like a sore thumb. Whereas this movie is in fact about yes, weirdos and immigrants and different ways of living lives and people yeah. working together and actually compassion in these yeah. ways and all the things that we don't know about our universe. Yep. That's what the movie's about. Yep. Acceptance and appreciation for things that are different than us. Yes. And if you went through the whole movie and never thought about that at all, intellectually, like you do about the dolphins, yeah. well, you actually might still have gotten the message. Yes. Because it came through the story that you felt through the whole thing, you know? People don't know how they can be, as you said, Steve, influenced by movies on a subconscious level, um, you know, until they actually spend some time 
analyzing their behavior as a result of a movie. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. It's funny, it's another digression. I'm not mm. sure if I'll keep it in, but I've been writing, I've been trying to do other kinds of writing these days. Mm. And one of them was I got very obsessed with the idea of constitutional originalism. And yeah. I spent months researching it and wrote an essay on it. Which, really? And then I had a, a friend of my mom's who is a, a fairly successful attorney who has tried three cases at the Supreme Court. Wow. You know? So I sent it to him. And um, I was very proud of it. And as I always am, I want people to simply say, this is the greatest piece of legal writing since the Constitution itself. This is, why do you say yourself up like this? But okay, yes. That's all I want. And needless to say, he did not say that. (laughs) And what was interesting was the criticism was that I just wasn't as clear as I should be. And I realized that part of the problem was that I have learned how to write through writing movies, is that um, I, 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 when uh, I did the shark documentary, I wanted to present a whole bunch of compelling ideas to have right. people thinking about the things I want them to think about. Right. But I don't want to come out and say, this is what I think. That's not right. how good movies are made because I want people. And if I just said, this is what's the truth about sharks right. at the beginning of the movie, well, that would be a pretty boring movie. I want people emotionally engaged. Yeah. That's the opposite of the kind of writing I was trying to do about constitutional ah. originalism, where I had to clearly state yeah. This is what it is. This is why I think it doesn't work. And here is my evidence of all of this. You have to show your work, Steve. I know. That was exactly how I yep. fucked up. And so now I got to write, and this is now the fourth draft of this extreme thing I've been working on forever that I have to find a publisher for somewhere to put out. But I got obsessed with the idea and now I have to make it better because it's just, that's, that is, even though my goal is always to be told I'm the greatest writer in the history of writers, my experience is always you get the shit kicked out of you, you fuck it up, Blah. and then you make it better, and then you do that over, and then you repeat. Mm-hmm. And that is, in fact, the process. Right. Not, not, I'm a genius, and everyone should recognize that. That is not the process. Anyway, as you mentioned before, all he has to do is give up every single human connection, and no one will know he exists. And Edwards asks, as, as he's leaving, Hey, is it worth it? Oh, yeah, it's worth it. If you're strong enough. And walks away as he thinks. And thinks all day and maybe all night. And then we're back at headquarters, back at that same guard, back at the elevator. And Edwards has come back and says, All right, I'm in. Because look, there's some next level shit going on around here and I'm with that. But before y'all get to beaming me up, it's a couple things I want you to understand. First off, you chose me. So you recognize the skills. And I don't want nobody calling me son or kid or sport or nothing like that. Cool. I love that for the rest of this movie, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones is going to call. He might not call him those exact names. Yeah. He calls him Tiger, Scout. Slick. Well, that's what he says in the next line. Yeah. Cool. Whatever you say, Slick. But I need to tell you something about all your skills. He opens the door into Men in Black headquarters. And we look down into this huge room, uh. again, beautifully designed, filled with aliens and technology and craziness and Tommy Jones says as of right now they mean precisely dick <laughs> it's great because Edwards walks in there wanting to be like no y'all gonna respect me I got all this stuff so it's gonna be on my terms yep and and Kay's like yeah uh, I appreciate the hubris of you young man I, I remember being young like you but here's the truth and your world and your brain's about to explode with all the stuff we're about to give you. So yeah, I love that. It's a great, 
twist and turn, which is why these two work so well together. Yeah. Because you don't see them as antagonists with each other. They're actually learning from each other as the film goes along, and you appreciate that. And, and I think as Edwards, who is soon to not be Edwards, yeah. is about to join the Men in Black, it's a good time to end but, part one of our exploration of Men in Black. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Obviously, John and I had a lot of shot, thoughts about it, this movie. I think this movie is so much fun, and I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are. If you wanted to buy or stream Men in Black because you haven't seen it, I highly recommend taking a interstellar journey to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Men in Black along with every other film we've ever done. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do it at Apple Podcasts or Google Play or on YouTube. Leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts, your comments on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter at Cinner, uh, at Twitter or X. Are we going to, do I have to just start saying X now? I don't, it's still Twitter it's in my you. brain. Let's say Twitter. Uh, it's Cine underscore files. It's the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And of course, if you want to reach me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram and patreon.com slash the cinephiles for our watch alongs, the advisory board, our schedule every month, uncut versions of our two part shows, ad free versions of all of our shows and possibly an upcoming discussion on conspiracy theories and the room 237 documentary about the shining all of that on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. John, how would people reach you? You can always find me at the Men in Black headquarters. No, <laughs> I, you can find me at the Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch. And uh, I echo Steve's call to those of you who um, and maybe are hesitating or not sure about joining our Patreon. I can speak to the people who are in the Patreon. They will tell you how much we are doing for them and how much they're enjoying the stuff we're doing for them because we get nothing but fantastic feedback, great tips that we take into account to adjust how we're delivering our uh, benefits and our positive stuff for you all to enjoy and our work for you all to enjoy as well. So take a look at that. Go and see all the new stuff that's going on for there because we're always adding stuff and we're always adjusting things. Uh, and uh, that makes the show great, I think, always. Uh, so please go and take a look at it at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And I think that's it for this week. We will be back next time for part two of Men in Black right here on the cinephiles. <laughs>